Hey, Davey Rothbard here. So, in our last episode, we began the intriguing story of a guy named Elmer L. Jacobson. His entire life files were found years ago in a dumpster in Crown Point, Indiana. I grabbed what I could reach. I think it was three good sized boxes, like full of stuff with accordion envelopes and stuff. What stuck out, like literally stuck out for me, was there was a wooden sign, hand painted with big block black lettering that said Crime Commission. Now, if you haven't heard the last episode, you should probably go back and start there. But here's what we were able to piece together from digging through Elmer Jacobson's old documents. In 1939, Elmer joined the FBI. And for ages, he toiled away as a lowly file clerk. But he had dreams of something bigger. For the past six or seven years, it has been my ambition to become a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. During that period, the appointment for which I am asking has been my sole goal. Today, we'll sift through Elmer's letters, FBI reports, and more to find out just how far he'll go to make his dream a reality. We were lucky enough to have Jim Clementi come by the studio. He's host of the podcast Real Crime Profile and a retired FBI agent who helped us understand the inner workings of the Bureau. And I'll call up someone very close to Elmer Jacobson to fill in the blanks in this incredible story. It was in my driveway. I found it in the trash. In the middle of the library book. On the windshield of my car. From Found the Musical, Killer Films Media, and Wondery, this is Found. I'm Davey Rothbard. As I read through page after page of Elmer's FBI case files and personal letters, I realized I was going to have to call for some backup. Now, I had some questions because I've never been an FBI agent. You have. <laughs> I have been an FBI agent, yes, for 22 years. <laughs> and, and so I thought That's you That's Jim have a really Clementi. Perspective. Um, He's a retired FBI agent, your, and he has a pretty uh, incredible resume. About your background. Started out in the New York office, was on the bank robbery and violent crime squad, and then I went undercover for three years as a broker on the commodities exchange in, in Wall Street, and then went back to doing cold case homicides and major crimes in D.C., and then was promoted to the behavioral analysis unit for the last 12 years in my bureau career. I was an FBI profiler. So I thought Jim would be the perfect person to help me piece together Elmer's life story, which is dominated by a love for the FBI. When we first meet Elmer, in one of the earliest letters from 1941, he's submitting his application to be a special agent in the FBI, which at the time was run by J. Edgar Hoover. Elmer's cover letter is so eager and so detailed, it's clear that he desperately wants this job. I have to tell you right from the start, it brought back a little bit of shiver to me because I remember <laughs> when, when I was applying to the FBI, yeah. it's, it's quite a daunting task. First of all, the application itself was about 25 pages long. And you have to put every place you ever lived and worked and everything you've ever done in your life into it. So it's pretty intimidating. But on top of that, you know you're competing with the highest caliber of people, and they have very high standards. Yeah. So anybody who wants, really wants to be an FBI agent is going to you know, have a little bit of anxiety about the application process. And I think it comes through very well in this letter because he's talking about what his ambitions are and how he's trying to attain them and the jobs that he's doing and the fact that he's like trying to balance going to school and actually working for the FBI and all that. And I think he's evincing a very uh, 
anxiety-provoked yeah. uh, response to this Because uh, he wants it so badly. Process. Absolutely. And he even says, um, whatever the Bureau's decision is as to passing on my qualifications, I shall willingly abide by it. He, he even <laughs> says, like, you might pass uh, on my qualifications, and that I'll live with. He's humbling himself before them yeah. and just saying, I badly want this. I want to be part of the team. But if you don't deem me worthy, so be it. I get it. I'll still work for the FBI and do everything I can. Yeah. I mean, how has it changed from 1941 to today? Well, I think it's more, much more standardized today. Uh, back in the day here, Hoover basically approved every single applicant. And if he didn't like the way somebody looked down to his hat size, yeah. he would fire somebody. Uh, so it was a much more... You could get into the FBI, just staying in was harder. Exactly. Well, even, you know, when you go into the new agent training, he could fire people, even though they made it through the process. Right. Take a look at them and not like them and send them home. And that's just outrageous, actually. Yeah. But anyway, if you did make it through the process, there were a lot of pitfalls along the way. Now, we're not going to leave you in suspense. Elmer got the job. Not on his first try, but he kept applying, and eventually he convinced the FBI that he had what it takes. Just a year after he was working as a file clerk and writing long-winded memos about conserving office supplies, we find Elmer in Birmingham, Alabama, where he's been assigned his first post as a special agent. And what's it like? Kids, you know, imagine what it would be like to work for the FBI. What, what is it really like? Well, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's an awesome responsibility, of course, because you're carrying a gun, you're carrying your FBI credentials that basically tell you you have to uphold the Constitution and the laws of the United States, and you have to do investigations to do that. And because of that, it's a big responsibility. When you have the ability, and in some cases, the duty to take someone else's life, Mm -hmm. it's just... Uh, it's not done lightly, and it affects you. So this is something that you have to heavily weigh before you become an FBI agent. And also, carrying a gun and being proficient with it and being able to then live the rest of your life knowing that you have a loaded firearm on your side, it's something that you know d- means you can't go out and get drunk. It means when you're on an airplane, you're on duty, no matter where you're going. Yeah. It, it means there's a lot of responsibilities. Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, Elmer is accepted into the Bureau. Yes. And, you know, I mean, you can only imagine his elation, because this is a guy who has been, you know, wanting to do this his whole life, and now he's finally become an FBI agent. And yet, just with, within the next year, this letter pops up. Birmingham, Alabama. March 17th, 1943. Memorandum. At 9 a.m. on March 15th, 1943, the writer was assigned to the surveillance of Mr. and Mrs. Clyde Robertson, looking toward the apprehension of Mick Montos. Montos is the last of the three subjects at large and is known to be the most dangerous. Accordingly, the writer wore a sidearm. So, picture Elmer Jacobson, now a full-fledged FBI agent, out on a stakeout. It was more than ever apparent that great speed of mind, feet, and car would be necessary to keep either of the Robertsons within sight throughout the afternoon. After several unsuccessful attempts in the morning to give the above-mentioned agents the slip, Robertson again left his house about 1 p.m. 
Throughout the afternoon, the writer was intermittently in need of hurriedly entering and leaving one or the other car, during which time the writer's firearm could possibly have worked itself loose from the holster against the upholstery of the car. So, yeah, Elmer lost his gun while on duty. And then he has to explain himself in a formal report to his supervisors, including the man up top, J. Edgar Hoover. Now, J. Edgar Hoover was known as a really fearsome guy. He ran the FBI for nearly 50 years, building it from scratch into an elite crime-fighting unit. But he also used the FBI as his own secret police force to bully and intimidate activists like Martin Luther King Jr. And a lot of people think he even blackmailed congressmen and presidents. If you mess up really badly at work, having to fess up to a boss like J. Edgar Hoover, well, that's kind of a nightmare scenario. And keeping the Bureau's name out of this matter. The writer can only assure that he was attending strictly to business and intent on giving his best efforts to the case at hand when this loss occurred. He, of course, deeply regrets that this misfortune had to occur, but does not feel that under these circumstances, which demanded speed and agility, he was at all negligent. However, he does feel that an improvement of his perspective and knowledge of the limitations of the standard holster will follow from this bitter experience. Respectfully submitted, Elmer L. Jacobson, Special Agent. Do you think this is a fireable offense? I mean, what would happen if you had lost your gun? No, no, it's not. It's not a fireable offense unless you were, I mean, like, for example, if you got drunk and fell down and somebody took your gun, yeah, you'd be fired because of that. Yeah. But if it's in the course of business, doing your duties, or if it's because of intervening crime, um, I think it becomes a letter of censure. Elmer actually makes a number of points explaining why he lost his gun. He says that, you know, he, he was on a stakeout, basically. Right. Watching, you know, from, from a car, watching from like 600 yards away, this guy's house, uh, a suspected con man. And sometime between 1 p.m. and 6 p.m., he lost his gun. He says he was moving between two cars that he was staking out. And he said he realized afterwards that whether his gun is in his holster or not, he can't tell the difference when he's sitting in a car. Mm. And he tests it later, and he says, yes, you can't tell the difference, so it's not really my fault. Maybe the holsters need a redesign. (laughs) Yeah? That's pretty creative. (laughs) Um, Well, if he's right-handed and his gun is on his right hip, then chances are it is resting against the seat, and so that pressure, that weight of it is not going to be felt on your belt. Uh, So I think he's probably right about that. And, and he also says that in order to try to get the gun back, he's placed ads in the local newspapers saying, Revolver, 38 caliber Colt, blue steel, lost Monday, reward, with his own phone number. And he says, the Bureau is hereby assured that it will not be embarrassed in any way concerning this episode. All inquiries are being made in a discreet fashion. Basically, he's saying no one will ever know that the FBI is involved. Is involved that right. They'll just think it's somebody lost his gun. Right. Well, here's the thing. He used those magic words, embarrass the Bureau. The FBI, and particularly under Hoover, has always been concerned about embarrassment. And don't embarrass the Bureau was Hoover's number one mantra. Mm. So he is absolutely addressing this 
directly to Hoover because he, the last thing he would want to do is embarrass the Bureau. That would get you fired. And Elmer's slip-up did not go unnoticed by J. Edgar Hoover. In fact, Hoover responded personally. Dear Sir, the Bureau has been informed of the loss of your revolver, number 684979, while recently assigned to a surveillance. And I am writing to advise you of my extreme displeasure over the entire incident. In view of your negligence in this instance, you are being suspended without pay. It is requested that you submit a check in the amount of $28.91 in payment for the revolver. Very truly yours, J. Edgar Hoover. This is uh, your standard letter of reprimand, letter of censure from the FBI director. And I've known a number of people who have gotten these letters over the course of their career, uh, some through no fault of their own, but others because they were not careful. For, for losing their guns. For losing their guns and also for losing their credentials. But what's really amazing about this is this line here. It is requested that you submit a check in the amount of $28.91 in payment for the revolver. In other words, Elmer had to write a check for the amount of the revolver of $28.91 to the FBI. It's pretty amazing. To, to refund yes. for his lost gun. Because he was so irresponsible to lose his gun. Actually, the reason why it's bad losing a gun is because some bad person could use it to kill somebody else, and that would be horrible. Yeah. And he also got what we call 10 days on the bricks, and that means 10 days without pay. And that's a big chunk of money when you're talking about you know, a first-level FBI agent. You know, yeah. you're, they're hitting you where it hurts. And it's not long before Elmer gets in trouble again. July 27, 1943. Memorandum for Special Agent Elmer Leonard Jacobson. But this time, it's for his administrative failures. In a memo, a supervisor says how displeased he is with Elmer's sloppy paperwork. I would not have taken this means of bringing this matter to your attention except for the fact that you have indicated a great deal of carelessness in submitting investigative reports recently. So Elmer gets reprimanded for his note-taking. And they say that he's dictating these reports, but he's not organized, that he doesn't really have his thoughts together before he sits down to, to dictate them. And he just kind of, it seems like, is, is behaving a bit sloppily. And I wonder, how, how much is filing reports a critical part of being an FBI agent? It's an extremely critical part, uh, particularly under Hoover. Um, I do relate to him, though, because the FBI at this time, and when I became an FBI agent, mm -hmm. would you would not type up your own reports. What you would do is dictate them on tape, send that to a dictation pool, maybe in Iowa, right? and there was nothing but rooms full with secretaries just typing up these reports every single day. Yeah. It's kind of weird, uh, kind of misogynistic, and, right. uh, and very backwards, but I guess it was the way they did things back then. It was supposed to be most efficient. Rather than having secretaries in every office, they just had a pool of secretaries where it was cheap in the middle of the country, and they would just slave away all day typing up reports for FBI agents. But, but also, it doesn't allow you to edit your own report. Correct. As you you're have doing to it. right. You, have, you to, have to get it back and then do the edits and send it back again, and it's really kind of a pain in the neck. And one time, I had 
dictated about 15 different tapes filled with reports yeah. at one time. I was in the middle of a, a very big case, and I had done a number of interviews, so I did all of them straight through. Yeah. And I sent them to the dictation pool, and a week went by, and two weeks, and three weeks, and I called them, and nothing, and I, uh, a month went by, and finally I get a call from one of the secretaries there who yeah. said, I got that envelope filled with those tapes, and I thought they were just tapes being returned, so I erased them. No. Yes. No. Yes, so <laughs> so she just erased all those tapes. So what's well, it's hard to recreate all that work oh, weeks I, later. We a month uh, later. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I had notes. Right, I had notes, but it's just not the same. And and it was many many hours worth of work that I had done that were just gone. So it sounds like there's two ways to look at this, Elmer. If he's being reprimanded for being disorganized, may- maybe he is a bit disorganized in his work. At the same time, the system itself is kind of flawed and messy and makes it easy for people to mess up. That's true. And I, and I see this thing. He said, the stenographers have recently advised that you need to prepare better for your dictation. They state that on numerous occasions, you will dictate a report and then go to the stenographer on four or five occasions before it is transcribed to insert additions which you had forgotten to dictate. In one instance, you sent one stenographer four routing slips containing inserts on one report. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, see, the problem with that is, I mean, if he's not putting all that information in the report, if he forgot certain things, I mean, this actually is evidence in a tr- in a case that could be admitted into evidence at a trial. So, I mean, you have to be incredibly, very, very vigilant. Meticulous. About, yeah, meticulous about making sure that it's absolutely accurate. So this is just outrageous. This is worthy of reprimand. Yeah, yeah. I see your face falling. Like your yeah, your, your, your estimation of Elmer Elmer is sort of dropping rapidly. Yeah, but well, at least his writing and and organization skills. I mean, that's the thing. FBI agents have to have a very high degree of ability to communicate and to document. And if you can't, then you can't do these reports and you can't testify properly at the trial. As we move on, like Elmer seems like he's. Not really starting out on the best foot. He's losing his gun. He's messing up his reports. But he's still getting these very friendly letters from J. Edgar Hoover. And, I, and I'm surprised. I don't know how many people were in the Bureau at the time. But J. Edgar Hoover, every time he has a, a kid born, you know, here's uh, Elmer's son, Lynn, was born. Elmer's son, Robert. Even once Elmer is sick and he gets a letter from J. Edgar Hoover saying, hey, man, don't worry about work this week. Just want you to feel better. Really? Yeah, yeah. He said, uh, J. Edgar Hoover says... I have been informed of your illness, and I was sorry indeed to learn of this. I want to urge by all means that you follow strictly your doctor's advice, and further that you dismiss any thoughts you may have concerning your work at this time. Wow. (laughs) I mean, is it surprising the level of detail that one agent having a flu yeah know? it's ju- but it shows you the degree to which J. Edgar hoover micromanaged fbi agents and the entire bureau he was a bulldog and 
this does not surprise me in terms of him being aware of every single thing that's happening. And can you imagine being a young agent and knowing <laughs> that this guy, the director of the FBI, who is notorious for being vicious, um, knows about everything that's happening? Are you going to call in sick when you're not sick, when you're getting a letter like this? <laughs> Probably not. But maybe the pressure was good for Elmer. Because as we skip ahead through the papers, we see that nine years later... Elmer seems to have found his footing, and he has a huge breakthrough. I, Kenneth Allen Kitts, make the following voluntary statement to Elmer L. Jacobson, who I know to be a special agent of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. No promises, threats, or any other inducements have been made to me for this statement. You know, it seems like at some point Elmer does pull it together, because in 1952 he elicits the confession of this notorious bank robber named Kenneth Kitts. Kenneth Kitts robbed dozens of banks in Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas. I secured the keys to the bank from Wangsness's pants pocket and the combination to the vault from him. Hardy and Bell Castro tied up the Wangsnesses with wire. Kenneth talks about like going to the bank manager's house, tying up the guy's family, taking him to the bank, grabbing a few thousand dollars. This is maybe a 1940s, 1950s-style bank robbery in Iowa. He told me where the bank's money was in the vault. I found it and put it in cloth money bags. Bell Castro and I then took Wangsness back to his house and tied him up again in bed. And uh, Elmer Jacobson was actually able to bring him down. I've read the above statement consisting of this and five other ink-written pages. I find it to be true. Kenneth Allen Kitts. Elmer, for all the trouble he had in his career, he he did land this, you know, Kenneth Kitts, this one of the most notorious bank robbers of the time. And you got to think that that brings him some satisfaction and, Absolutely. Some, and some job security. Well, pretty much. I mean, if this guy was one of the most wanted, for example, then he would have been the recipient of great accolades and, and probably promotions and things like that, or... A lot of times what the FBI would do is give you your office of preference. In other words, they've been bouncing you around the country, but if you make a great big arrest like this, they may say, where would you like to live? And they'll move your family mm. to that that new location. And sometimes that's a small town in middle America because it's cheaper there and you can live like a king. Sometimes it's going back home to New York City or L.A. or San Francisco or Miami, wherever you were from in the beginning. Elmer may have had a couple years of glory, but it seems like nailing Kenneth Kitts wasn't enough to keep him in the Bureau's good graces. Because just two years after the high point of his career, he receives this letter from J. Edgar Hoover. Dear Mr. Jacobson, you are hereby requested to submit your resignation as a special agent in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, effective at 12 noon on October 25th. This action is being taken in view of a number of serious delinquencies in your performance as disclosed during a recent inquiry into allegations made against you. Specifically, this inquiry disclosed improper handling on your part of an investigative matter, including failure to analyze your objective and channel your efforts accordingly, improper reporting, and failure to close the case in question when the investigation warranted no further attention. In addition, you were extremely careless in proceeding unarmed 
on a criminal type investigation. Moreover, your actions in parking in a prohibited area, tying up an office phone and organizing your investigative notes in this office were most indiscreet. Finally, it was disclosed that since you have been assigned to the Kansas City office, you have been involved in an excessive number of delinquencies, including low production, excessive time spent in the office, improper reporting, and failure to follow specific bureau instructions. Very truly yours, J. Edgar Hoover. Two days later, Alma responds. Dear Mr. Hoover, After considerable thought with regard to the welfare and needs of my family, I very much regret that it is necessary to submit my resignation from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And if it seems surprising that Elmer would give up this easily, a guy who has devoted his entire life to working for the FBI, well, it turns out by the next day, he's had some second thoughts. He's not ready to go down without a fight. The next morning, he writes another letter. One that sounds a lot more like the Elmer Jacobson we've come to know and love. Dear Mr. Hoover, Yesterday evening, I did the most difficult thing I have ever been called upon to do. Submit my resignation from the Federal Bureau of Investigation. All day today, I have been reminding myself of what I am losing. Therefore, I am directing this letter to you in a last effort to avoid this catastrophe. On November 6, 1954, I was to celebrate my 15th anniversary in the Bureau, but the Bureau has been my life longer than that. All my plans and dreams of the past 20 years have hinged on the Bureau. To have the Bureau taken away from me is no less a blow than to lose a loved one. It is part of my family and part of me. To lose it due to action on my part, which appeared to be disrespectful or disloyal, is doubly agonizing. In conclusion, Mr. Hoover, I plead for your forgiveness and for an act of mercy from you. Without it, to be excluded from the Bureau is not only a tremendous blow to me personally, but I feel it will have a profound adverse effect on my children, four of whom are school-age and have been extremely proud of the fact that their father is an FBI agent. Therefore, I appeal to you personally requesting that my resignation under date of October 23, 1954, not be accepted, and that I be restored to duty wherever you may choose as you see fit. If you can accede to this request, you will forever have the undying gratitude of my wife and me. Very truly yours, Elmer L. Jacobson. Yeah, it sounds like he realized the the finality of this and that this actually was his lifelong dream. He complied with the request to submit his letter of resignation, but in fact, he thought about it and he realized this is the end of his life as he knows it. It's really sad. And this, in conclusion, Mr. Hoover, I plead for your forgiveness and for an act of mercy from you. Everything I know about Hoover is he didn't forgive and he certainly wasn't merciful. Lays it all on the line. 
Just tell me. Did he get his job back or no? Well, I'll tell you. Here's the letter that Elmer received the next week from J. Edgar Hoover. Dear Mr. Jacobson, this letter acknowledges receipt of your communication dated October 23rd, submitting your resignation as a special agent of this bureau and your subsequent letter of October 24th, wherein you requested that your resignation as previously submitted not be accepted. In accordance with your request, your resignation is not being accepted. All I can say is, wow, amazing. <laughs> I, I just, amazing. And somehow he got to the heart of J. Edgar Hoover. I don't know how that's possible. A guy who's not known for being merciful I know. or forgiving. I have he, never heard of this happening before in the FBI. Wow. Wow. Of somebody being asked to resign. And then saying, okay, we're just going to put you on the bricks for a month and take you back. Wow, that's pretty amazing. I have to give Elmer, Elmer his. Yeah, I do. He must have been just blown away when that happened. Dear Mr. Hoover, Mere words cannot fully express my appreciation for your kindness in restoring me to duty. Please be assured that I will be returning to work firmly resolved to prove to you that I am a fully qualified special agent and that I am disposed to remain in this category. But just a year later, Elmer is applying to jobs and he's no longer with the FBI. And from just the contents of the three boxes that our friend Eric Michael Morris pulled from an Indiana dumpster, it's hard to figure out what exactly happened to Elmer. So I decided to track down someone who could shed some light. It's my dad, Elmer L. Jacobson. This is Bob Jacobson, one of Elmer's nine children. We found him living in a small town in Indiana, and he agreed to talk with me and share a bit more about his dad. Uh, well, uh, he fought for truth. The longer he was in the business, he realized that you know, he really liked the cop on the beat, you know, doing doing the thing. Did you, I mean, growing up, did you understand the kind of work he was doing? Not when I was, you know, really small. But there was one instance, um, you know, in his later years in the Crime Commission in Indiana, he would sometimes check his vehicle for a bomb in the morning before he uh, started the engine. And uh, that, that, that was kind of an eye-opener. We never found one, never happened, but... He would have been the target of, you know, individuals who didn't want him around and looking into what they were doing. He told you guys that's what he was doing. Yes. Were you worried about his safety? Sure, but he he didn't come home and talk about that stuff too much. One of the highlights of his career, at least from the files that I was digging through, talked about his arrest of a notorious bank robber named Kenneth Kitts. I was wondering if if you ever heard any details of, of that story. Well, he was uh, commended a number of times in his first decade or so. And Kitts is K-I-T-T-S, and he, he called him Kenny Kitts. That was how he, how he went. Yeah. See, back then, Hoover did not want anybody to do undercover stuff. He thought that was a way of his agents to get in trouble and not be clean and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. But my dad would talk to people in the Bowery and guys that are kind of down and out. You know, trying to get information uh, about bad, bad guys, or you know, that might be in the yeah. neighborhood. So he was he was a little better than developing some of his sources. That's 
you know, how he was able to crack some of those things. You know, you talked about Hoover and how, you know, Hoover didn't really see that kind of undercover work as having value, but your dad did see the importance of it. Do you think he and Hoover had other clashes? Did he, what, what else did, do you remember him ever saying about J. Edgar Hoover? He was a very, very shrewd man, and, you know, if you got on the wrong side of him, it wasn't, it wasn't good. You know, I, I think my dad would, would have liked to stay in the FBI longer, but, you know, things didn't always work out. Um, my mom, um, you know, she didn't like being moved around every two or three years to different cities, never accumulating anything or getting a house that you could own. Yeah. So he, he really uh, put in for transfer up to Minnesota because he was a North High School graduate in Minneapolis, and he went to the University of Minnesota, and that's where the family was, and his, his parents were getting elderly. He, uh, he resigned from the FBI in 55, and then we moved back to Minnesota. The next year, I started kindergarten up in Minneapolis, and wow. And then he 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 worked for you know different different company. It was um, actually it was a nonprofit called um, the Citizens League, and they're still in operation in Minnesota. Um, did that till he could get back into crime fighting, and then he moved to Indiana ten years later. So well, it's really interesting because as looking through the files. I, it was hard to tell what specifically ended his FBI career. And so it sounds like you're saying he, he put in for a transfer. He wanted to return home to Minnesota, and maybe it wasn't approved. Maybe that was why he resigned? or Yeah. Um, my mom wanted him to, to leave the FBI. Of course, when you got a lot of, a lot of kids and you know, responsibilities, it's not easy. And he enjoyed yeah. the, he enjoyed the work a lot. Thought he should be rewarded, you know, after being there fifteen years with uh, with an assignment that he would like a little better, uh, and it wasn't to be. So I I think there were some people he he ran afoul of in the FBI, and uh, they just didn't want to honor that. They just didn't want to honor that, and you know, so he uh, he resigned. Yeah. There was one instance where my dad was talking to somebody. And I don't know if this was in Kansas City or Omaha or wherever it was, but it was a young tough, and and the FBI was interviewing him, and you know they're trying to put some pressure on to get some more information or whatever. And the guy says, "Ah, I don't have to talk to you. I've got a friend who's got a who knows this congressman down in Texas, and he's got a direct line to Jagger Hoover." And it, it turned out that it was. Uh, LBJ that the guy had mentioned. Oh. So he mentions that to my dad, you know, and my dad, you know, just files that away and keeps doing his work. Well, in about a week, <laughs> you know, the supervisor comes in and takes my dad off the case. And uh, he gave him no explanation. He said, well, you're not going to, you're not, we're going to give this case to, uh, you know, somebody else and you're going to go over here and do wow. this other work. So they actually took him off of this case he was working on. The young tough guy was uh, had revealed to my dad the avenue that that it went. So it's so interesting that you share that story, Bob, because now I can see, you know, if your dad Elmer was was having some conflicts with his direct supervisors, these could be the kinds of reasons that he was frustrated with them. You know, they're taking yes. him off case because of something political, when actually, you know, he's got the guy, you know, mm-hmm. he's about to crack something. It seems like I'm kind of putting a theory together, but the more the more stories you share about your dad, the more I feel like he was almost like 
an old school cop at heart, you know, and just mm-hmm. who liked the actual act of crime fighting and, and the politics and personalities and, you know, all that stuff kind of uh, grew frustrating for him. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And later in life, I had uh, I sat down and talked to him. I said, you know, what's the point? Who cares? You know? And he kind of looked at me and got mad. You know, he says, it's just mm. not right. You know, it's, you know, you, you got to care kind of thing. And I was thinking, you know, life's too short. Why do you, why do you keep banging your head against the wall? You know, why don't you just what did you mean? let it go? What well, did you mean, who he, cares? What did you? Um, you know, you, you put in a good effort. You try to do what's right. Uh, but at some point you retire. You know, you let, you let mm-hmm. the younger guys do it. You, let, you know, let somebody else do it. And, and, uh, and when you say banging his head against the wall, what, what did you, what did you see? Well, he never he never gave that uh, gave the fight up. He was always um, till the end, even after he retired, he was very much interested in all that stuff. You know, I, I thought he ought to just retire and enjoy the sunset and you know smell the flowers and <laughs> do that kind of thing. And he he kind of I heard saw a little anger in him. He you know you just can't give up. It's like something you can't let go of can't let the bad guys win kind of thing so yeah yeah what was he like as a father you know he's pretty busy we had a lot of kids you know he he once said uh to me he says uh i guess as a teenager and he thought i wasn't telling them the truth and he looks at me he says don't bullshit me boy i've been bullshitted by the best i've been (laughs) lied i've been lied to by the best you because know, he's so used to interviewing people and that kind of thing. Yeah, you know, he could tell when people were lying. That. Yeah, yeah, that was that was one thing he said. Um, if your dad's an FBI agent, yeah, you you might not be able to fool him about how the car got scraped up or why you're coming in so late. Yeah, night. exactly, exactly. Yeah. I mean, you understood that how busy he was with his work. I mean, were you proud of him having it? I'll, I'll just tell you a story. Me and my me and my brothers, my dad had an office in the basement of our house that we weren't allowed to go in. So, of mm-hmm. course, we did go in there, and we would shuffle through his papers and try to figure out. He was traveling a lot. We were just, we didn't even know exactly what he did. And, and we just imagined that he was an FBI agent. And we would, <laughs> we were very proud of that. And we would, I, I remember even literally telling kids at school, like, about, you know, I was pretty sure my dad was in the FBI. <laughs> now, your dad really was in the FBI and, of course, continued to fight crime in the years after. Was this something you were proud about? I mean, did it something you were oh, able to share with, with friends? Yes, yeah, absolutely uh, proud of that. That's uh, something not too many fathers uh, uh, did, you know. Um, you know, some, yeah. are, some are truck drivers or they're... You know, do do other kinds of things. You know, maybe they're a teacher or something like that. But you know, to say that he was, uh, you know, a G-man. You know, hey, they made movies out of things that happened like that. In Elmer's later years, he spent time with his grandchildren, and he was into music. Once he saw James Brown in concert, and he'd get together every few years with some old friends from his FBI days, head down to Florida for a weekend reunion. One of the last letters that Elmer filed away in these boxes is a handwritten note, scratched out in a hurry by one of his buddies on a notepad from a Miami hotel. Jake, you were snoring so peacefully I didn't have the heart to wake you up. Anyways, I hate goodbyes. As usual, you saved the reunion for me. 
Your pictures were left in my car, so here they are. Love to Bonnie. Earl. Elmer passed away on October 12th, 1990. He had spent the tail end of his career heading up an outfit called the Northwest Indiana Crime Commission, right on the outskirts of Chicago. Elmer's obituary mentions that, at one point, he served time in jail for refusing to reveal his sources to a judge accused of corruption. In the end, he was a principled guy who found a way to keep doing what he loved, bringing down criminals, without having to operate under the thumb of J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI brass. After achieving his dream of joining the FBI and finding it wasn't all that he imagined, Elmer created his own path. Another one of Elmer's sons, Chris, says he never did slow down. After Elmer retired, he volunteered for a local hospital, the Red Cross, a tutoring program, Meals on Wheels, and even a group called Volunteers Against Corruption. He just kept banging his head against the wall, and he seemed to love it. How did Elmer's entire life files end up in that foul-smelling dumpster behind a tiki bar in Crown Point, Indiana? Nobody knows for sure. But aren't we all guaranteed the same fate? Our life's great works doomed to crumble in damp basements, attics, landfills, and garbage heaps. Me? I like the image of Elmer down in Florida at one of his FBI reunions, lost in a tranquil sleep in a Miami Beach motel room, after a weekend trading stories and reminiscing about the golden days with his old buddies. So, let's leave Elmer there and return to the stories of our own lives. That's a wrap on Found Season 2. We've really loved bringing you all these stories, digging through so many incredible finds, and meeting so many fascinating characters along the way. Thanks so much for riding along with us, and we'll keep you posted soon with news and updates about our next season. If you haven't already, definitely go ahead and subscribe to Found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite listening app. You can also find our show in the NPR One app, alongside all your favorite podcasts and news from NPR. And you can listen to our entire archive of seasons one and two of the Found Podcast at Wondery.com found. Killer Films, together with Amazon, is bringing you director Todd Haynes' newest film. In Wonderstruck, Ben and Rose are children from two different eras who secretly wish their lives were different. Ben longs for the father he's never known, while Rose dreams of a mysterious actress whose life she chronicles in a scrapbook. When Ben discovers a puzzling clue in his home and Rose reads an enticing headline in a newspaper, both children set out on quests that unfold with mesmerizing symmetry. The movie's in theaters now. You really should go check it out. It's fantastic. And don't forget the Found iOS app. 
You can check out all the finds we've been talking about on the podcast, and you can also share your own finds and suggest stories for future episodes. Found's executive producers are Victoria Lang, Jamie Salka, and Eva Price for Found the Musical, and Adrian Becker for Killer Films Media. Found is produced by me and the fantabulous Alyssa Dudley. Haley Hirschman is our absolute wizard of a co-producer. Our talent executive is Julie Zan. Found the musical composer Eli Bolin, that madman, he's our music director. Our engineer is the badass Sergio Enriquez. Consulting help comes from the great Ben Adair, and Thomas Matisic and Haley Watkins are our wonderful production assistants. Thanks a million to the entire team for their talents and all their hard work this entire season. Found comes to you from Wondery. Shout out to my main man, Hernan Lopez. We want to give a huge thanks to our amazing voice actors, Dan Tice, Hal Big Papa Rothbart, Andrew Call, Mike DiBella, and Graham Stevens. These guys really brought the story to life. And thanks again to our finder, Eric Michael Morris. We would never have been able to dig into this fascinating story without him doing a little dumpster diving in the first place. You can share your finds on the Found iOS app and on Found's Facebook and Instagram pages or at foundmagazine.com. Jim Clementi, our FBI expert for this episode, also has some really fantastic podcasts, Real Crime Profile and Best Case, Worst Case. If you liked hearing about FBI drama and crime fighting in our last two episodes, you're going to love Jim's shows. They're fantastic. Found is also a print magazine. Pick up our awesome found books and magazines packed with incredible finds and tons more fun stuff that make great gifts. It's all at foundmagazine.com. A special thanks to Sarah Locke, Brandy Wicks, James Melinda, and the whole crew at Found Magazine HQ. And thanks, most of all, to you for listening. Keep your eyes to the ground and send in your finds. <laughs>